everyone listening to this, what this man just said, he got in front of God and realized how small he is. And mm. you're getting a message from the man out of 8 billion people in this planet mm. that has the world record for his weight category that is stronger than any other man on this planet uh, in his category saying in front of God, I am, he is great. He is big and I am small. Hello and welcome to the program woke up and on today's show we have a fascinating guest uh, a man is incredibly gifted incredibly focused uh, a real personality he's a rapper he's a uh, hip-hop artist but he's had a, a, a comes from an incredible family and uh, he's also a, a, a famous in the World Wrestling uh, Federation he's a professional wrestler and uh, we, we have a guest on our show today his name is Monster Tarver and uh, He's a, just an awesome brother, an awesome man, and uh, I'm just honored that he's on the show. And so, Monster, uh, welcome to the show, Woke Up. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm so <laughs> excited to be here, man. I'm excited to be on this show. Well, why don't you tell our guests a little bit about where you come from? Your, I know you, you were born and raised in Cleveland, I think, and uh, like your pathway and, and, and the, the incredible things that have happened in your life. Absolutely. So I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, my family, we're originally from there. We followed my father's college basketball career um, to Oklahoma and then to Alabama. And then we ended up back up in Kent, Ohio, where he finished his college basketball and football career at Kent State University. And I ended up growing up in Kent, Ohio. Um, I had a very, very good upbringing. My parents were very close. And I was a preacher's kid. My mother was a minister. And um Part of my taglines when I was with WWE was that I was the son of a preacher and a prize fighter. Um, my referring to my mother as the preacher half of that, my father being the prize fighter because after his NFL career, he went to the Denver Broncos and then hurt his leg and um, had to retire from football. But then a year later, <laughs> took up pro boxing. <laughs> and then, you know, not that long after that, ended up Mike Tyson's sparring partner. So, you know, my, my family is... I have, you know, always said I've had large shoes to fill when it comes to living up to uh, the legacy of my mother and father. That's incredible. So did you, did you actually meet Mike Tyson too? I never got to meet him though. So my father would always travel to camp wherever Mike Tyson's camp were. I just remember taking him to the airport, you know, back and forth, back and forth to the airport. And that always fascinated me. So I was grateful that I was able to live a life where I got to travel for work as well. It just always reminds me of my father. And, and so you're obviously an incredible athlete. And uh, why don't you give us a little background, like, you know, how, how you grew up and as you became a man, what were your interests and, and where did life take you? Absolutely. So, and thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, my father and mother both had us, had all three of my siblings, two siblings and I, uh, had us training at an early age, taught us discipline and through the athletics and, you know, through teaching us the gospel, it taught us discipline, but it was so important that, you know, my father in particular had us in sports and that taught us discipline, taught us dedication. It taught us how to be tough and fight through pain, uh, recognize, you know, listen to our bodies, listen to our minds. And yeah, we, you know, my father would have us right running like miles <laughs> doing my brother and I running, you know, we used to call it road work and we basically go for these like couple mile jogs, you know, as part of our conditioning for boxing in the snow, it didn't matter. Um, and, we, you know, we were in church and then after school, we would have to go to our practice, whatever sport we were playing. Then we'd go to boxing practice <laughs> with my father. 
and then watch him spar. And then my little brother and I would train and, and that just kind of resonated with us into a, that ha having a love for sports and athletics. And we turned into athletes ourselves as well as my little sister. And from there, you know, for me personally, I went to college, played one year of basketball, ended up leaving school. Um, I had my oldest daughter, my freshman year of college, and she's now 26 years old, married with her own child. Um, Congratulations, Grandpa. Ah, I you weren't going to do it to me. My kids, they, my, my kids, they love, every time they get a chance, they call me Gramps. Oh. And I always threaten to punch them in the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I, them, I can still beat you up. I don't care if you're grown. I can still beat you up. <laughs> well, yeah, no, my babies give me that all the time. But yeah. Um, I'm so happy about my, my granddaughter. I'm so happy about that. It just, every time I think about her, it melts my heart. But, you know, I, you know, I went to college, you know, and, and had my daughter and then I ended up leaving school and, Took the long way <laughs> for the next 20 years or past 20 years, however you see it from whatever perspective. And got into, I went back to football and started playing semi-pro football, um, dabbled in arena football. I was trying my best to get into, you know, on a team in arena football. And then uh, once I saw that that wasn't going to work out, then I got into pro wrestling. And from there, it took me about four years and ended up getting a WWE contract. And I was, I was there for almost four years and then continued to wrestle until 2021. And that lasted about 18 years, uh, 18 years of pro wrestling. And, you know, I've been to, I thank God for the opportunity. It was tough. It was, it was hard. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But, it, you know, I got to go to different countries and different parts of the world and meet different people. And, you know, it was, it was a beautiful experience. And from there, I transitioned into powerlifting and, I absolutely love powerlifting. I, I tried MMA. I, you know, I tried to go back into boxing. Just fell in love with powerlifting, and I was able to. I have three world records, and I have a, a bunch of national records and a few state records. <laughs> but um, yeah, I absolutely love powerlifting, and that's that's part of my lifestyle. So powerlifting is deadlift, uh, bench press, and squats. Is that squat? Yes. Yeah. So absolutely. How? To qualify, is it like just one lift, or is it you have to do sets of them, or how does that work? So with, with power, right. So with powerlifting, you have three attempts on each lift, and every competition starts with squat, then bench, then deadlift, and you have three attempts on your squat, three attempts on your bench, three attempts on your deadlift, and um, you have to at least have one successful lift to continue the meet, or you do what we call bomb out. So if you hit do all three squats and all three judges, there's three judges on each lift. And if all three judges disqualifies the lift on all three lifts, then you, your meet is over, basically. Um, and what they do is they accumulate the best attempt from all three lifts of each lift, and that is what's called your total. And um, so, you know, whatever your highest lift on your squat, your highest on your bench, highest on your deadlift, they add those three lifts together, and that's your total. And you're still actively competing in that, or have you gotten to all I am. <laughs> no, no, no such thing. No, I just competed in the USPA uh, drug tested or drug free nationals um, uh, last month, and I won won my division in nationals. So I, I, technically, I guess I'm a national champion, but I also broke two world records there. That's it was it was in uh, Las Vegas. It was very exciting. You, you know, I was just uh, on YouTube the last couple of weeks, and I was uh, looking because I'm going to be 60 years old next year. Mm -hmm. You know, what? there's more and more studies coming out that the best thing you can do for longevity and a good quality of life as you mm -hmm. age and even into your geriatrics, it's mm -hmm. more important than diet, more important than exercise, more important than cardio mm -hmm. is uh, heavy lifting uh, because 
protects you from falls and balance. Mm. It's good mm -hmm. for your blood sugars and diabetes yeah. and all these yeah. other things that, uh, as we in a sedentary society face, uh, yeah. there's, there's lots of studies coming out that that is the most important exercise to do is heavy weightlifting, uh, at least a couple times a week. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, you obviously it's something that you've given your life to. Yeah. And you know, the, yeah, those studies are really good. And with the lifting powerlifting in particular, or even Olympic lifting, if your body can take it, you know, it's all in how you're programmed. If you have a coach and your coach, you program your lifts and you're never maxing out or lifting you 100% of what you can possibly do. You only, everything is what we call sub maximal. So it's percentages of what your maximum lift or max effort single lift rep would be. And, um, you know, a lot of credit, you know, a lot of credit to, um, Tony Conyers, he's my, my, you know, my mentor and um, spiritual father, and he's one of the greatest powerlifters of all time. And he's in his early 60s and is one, and he's still, he's one of the few and first people to lift 10 times his body weight. And this man is in his mid 60s, early mid 60s, and he's 150 pounds and can squat over 600 pounds, bench over 400 pounds, and deadlift over 600 pounds, still drug free. In his and, um, 60s. In his 60s. In his 60s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look up Tony Conyers. You'll be blown away. Wow. So, yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he helps. He sponsored me for the Nationals. I got to shout him out. But yeah, he's, he's definitely, you know, a staple in powerlifting. Anyone who knows powerlifting knows who Tony Conyers is. So you, you've been in athletics your whole life because you, you yes. glossed over your, your wrestling career. You were, you were famous. Yeah. You were a big yeah. personality and somewhat of a villain. And <laughs> you want to yeah. talk a little bit about <laughs> what, what that career was like and, Absolutely. Yeah. It was great because, you know, my, my wrestling career is a sad story. <laughs> it's a sad story, but it's, you know, it's got a lot of highs and lows, more lows probably, but the highs were great. So I, you know, I, I, my wrestling career started in 2004 in Akron, Ohio, this little bar, um, in Barberton, Ohio, which is a suburb of Akron, Ohio. And, um, I, for, I, the name of the bar just escaped me as I was about to say it. They tore it down. The Shamrock Nightclub. That's what it was called. And I remember it was in February of 2004. I saw a local access television, a broadcast of one of their shows and their, their world champion, because every indie company has a world champion, but their champion was a guy named Purple Hooter who ended up being a good friend of mine. Little guys, like under 200 pounds. He had a goofy purple luchador mask on a purple tights. And it was a gag gimmick, a comedy gimmick. And a um, great guy, incredible, incredibly talented guy. But I saw that. I thought, I kill that guy. I, I can do this. So I called the number and went down and walked into the, into the bar and they were, you know, setting up and practicing in the ring, getting ready for the show. And I was super, and I watched wrestling my whole life. I was a big fan and I was super confident until I walked in and saw them. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. I, then I saw what they were actually doing. I'm like, Oh, I don't know if I could do this. Wait, this, this is not what I thought it was. And I got nervous, but I still walked up to the promoter and he looked at me and said, Whoa, you are big. And I told me, <laughs> yeah, I'm the guy that called and blah, blah, blah. And so he gave me my first match, my first day in the business, which is, that never happens. It's a no-no. It never happens. But uh, I had my first match, my first day in the business. And typically, you don't even you, you have to train for a year, sometimes almost a year before you get your first match on the show. And then even with you know a lot of old school trainers, you're trained for a year before you get your first match. And then in your first match, you don't even get in the office. You just get eaten alive. Basically, we'll say you get eaten up. So whoever you you work with, your trainer for your first match, and I just beat you to a pulp for one minute, and that's your first match. You have to earn getting a punch or getting a kick or getting in the offense. And, you know, like I understood that I, I learned that as I continued in my early stages and I still have an appreciation for it. Um, 
Yeah, it was it was a tough time because during the time period, I started wrestling. I was homeless. I was sleeping in my car, and uh, I had just gotten divorced for the first time. And I was still playing semi-pro football as well, trying to chase, a, you know, an arena football contract. And there were times where I would have a football game during the day and two wrestling shows in the evening. There was one day I had a football game, and then then I d- left the football game, took my equipment off, drove drove to one show wrestled that match, jumped in my car with my wrestling gear on, drove an hour to the other show, wrestled that match. Like, I did that multiple times. But, I, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the early stages were crazy. And then I got my contract in uh, 2008. My first week on the job, I was on WrestleMania 24 <laughs> um, in the main event with Floyd Mayweather, and he was in the match against the Big Show. And myself and four other bro- three other brothers, um, we were his entourage. We walked into the ring in Orlando at the Citrus Bowl for 80,000 people. And it was just the most mind blowing experience. Like we spent the whole weekend with Floyd Mayweather and his entourage and in limousines and all of it. it was crazy, man. And you know, we walked him out to the, to the, uh, to the ring for 80,000 people. And that was my first week on the job at WrestleMania. It was WrestleMania at WWE. Oh. So yeah. <laughs> were you just naturally talented at it or did you just work really hard or like, how did you? go from just showing up at an event to uh, an international celebrity. Uh, I, mean, I would say it's a combination of both. I've always been, I've always had the ability to learn things phonetically, if you will. Like I can, if I can imitate it. If I can see it or hear it, I can imitate. Um, and I just have always kind of had that ability to be able to just do most things that I can, that I, you know, pick up. And it's not like, I hope it doesn't come off arrogant. I certainly don't mean it to be. It's just, you know, that's just my, personal experience. Um, so with pro wrestling, I've watched it my whole life and I was a fan of it. It was, it was easy for me to pick up, but I still had to learn, you know, the nuances of professional wrestling and being in the ring. And, and it took me, it took me a while, but I learned it. And when I got to WWE and got to their training, the developmental at the time was called Florida championship wrestling in Tampa. They moved me to Tampa. Um, that's where I really began learning. I started learning a lot and it just, you know, different things like you know, how to, attack a person's body part based on their size. You know, you're always wrestling against three people, one of three people, someone smaller, someone same size or someone bigger. And you have to set up your match based on one of those three people. And, you know, being able to listen to the crowd, feel the crowd, feel the audience, feel what's not working, what they're not buying or believing in, and then being able to call an audible and move to something else. You know, if you're in the ring and you're meant to be the bad guy, I meant to be the bad guy and someone else is the good guy, you know, baby face heel, so to speak. And we come out and the crowd just wants to get behind me. No matter what I do, they just don't like the other person. And we'll just we'll switch roles mid-match and then give the crowd whatever it is they want to keep them engaged and get them more engaged. Like being able to have the wherewithal to be aware of, you know, what you need to do in the ring to make sure you get the best result from the fans out of that match. So you have really good instinct instincts. I mean, to, to, to feel the crowd and mm. you know and you weren't you weren't bragging at all you're you're a man of god and you're uh you're recognizing that god has given you gifts and talents and you know you know right. what you know what the source is but to be honest about yeah i've, I've got an ability to do this that's that's it, it's good to have that kind of confidence and and that kind of forthrightness and uh so you're you're traveling around you're 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 probably making a lot of money doing that and d- during those years uh mm. you're, you're well known uh, what was going on in your soul? Like uh, you're raised in the oh, church, man. you had a Christian yeah. faith and like, what was that yeah. like? 
It's, it's funny because that's the perfect segue because in 2009, I had a spiritual awakening from a horrible spiritual attack. And like I said, I grew up in the church and I walked away from the church um, when I became an adult after I had my first child. I just kind of walked away from the church and I never did drugs, never smoked, never drank, never did drugs, never did anything in my life. I fought with depression. My, my vice, well, my Achilles heel was mental health, was depression. And it was just something I just did not know how to deal with. I didn't understand that it was spiritual, you know, as much as it is, you know, chemical imbalance. I didn't understand that, you know, and I was always very angry. And so, you know, once I got to WWE, I met my second wife. We started going to church. And in late 2009, I just had this horrible spiritual attack. But this is during the time period. Now, I always also had always been recording music as well. And I started recording in 2000. I'm sorry, I started recording music in 96, 97, 96. And in 2001, I had my first recording contract and it just kind of didn't go anywhere. So I'm digressing to bring everything together. So um, back to 2009, when I had the spiritual attack, this is around the time I got back into doing music, except I just got to a point where I couldn't digest secular music and language and content anymore. I couldn't do it anymore. Something in my, in my, in my spirit just was it, was, it was reacting negatively to it. It was like trying to, you know, force someone to eat something they don't like. They're going to spit it back out. And I just remember sitting, uh, this is when I first was introduced to iTunes, when iTunes first became a thing. And, and I just remember sitting and just sitting on my second ex-wife's computer saying, all right, God, if you show me music that sounds as good as the people I was listening to, I'll listen to it. Christian music, I'll, you know, Christian rappers, I'll listen to it. And before I knew it, I just found a, like hundreds of Christian rap artists. And I'm like, what? I'm listening to music and I was blown away. Like, oh my, what? Christian rap sounds like this? And, um, and that was when I first found uh, McCray and, and a couple other, you know, God Over Money. So I first found Bizzle and, and uh, Derek Minor, where his name is Pro. Uh, was another guy named Dwayne Triumph. He's from England. Like these were the first Christian rap artists I found and just fell in love with their music. And I fell in love with God, God Over Money in particular. Like that's just, I could tell by Bizzle's message and how, uh, intense he was about delivering his message and, and how unafraid he was. I was like, yeah, that's who I want to be with. I, I knew 10 years ago I wanted to be with God over money. But um, it led to this spiritual attack where I just was, I didn't sleep for a month. It's October 2009. We went and saw a movie called Paranormal Activity. And I had this horrible PTSD type flashback from that movie. It triggered a very bad tra uh, trauma response from childhood, you know, from spiritual attacks in childhood. And I just remember that movie just messed me up for the whole entire next month. I couldn't sleep. I was hearing voices. I was seeing shadows. I couldn't, I was just, it was, I was going crazy. And then on top of that, WWE talent relations people were trying, were telling me that I was about to get fired. I was going to lose my job, even though they were about to announce that I was going to be a part of NXT, which debuted in um, February, 2010, that they were about to send me to the next, to the next level. And um, I was about to debut, but they played mind games. And, what was even more confusing about going through all of that was during that time, Dusty Rhodes, American Dream Dusty Rhodes, he was, you know, very active with helping us in the creative department in Florida in uh, FCW. And he was my mentor. He worked personally with me hand in hand. And going through all of those, you know, spiritual things at work, Dusty Rhodes, you know, propping me up and helping me in the WWE officials telling me, you know, you're about to get fired. You're not doing good enough. But Dusty Rhodes is co-signing me. I just was so confused. And it was listening to the Christian hip hop. And that was when uh, Mary Mary, that song, uh, God and Me, was very popular. And they released an album called The Sound. And I remember I listened to that CD <sighs> till the colors fell off. And that was just my 
comfort was listening to that. And from there, I decided to change my music to Christian hip hop music. And that was when, you know, my Christian hip hop music was born, so to speak. Oh, that's fascinating. And yeah, yeah keep going, keep, keep telling like what was going on in your life. And you know, you were married yeah. again and yeah. What was your pathway? So, so yeah. So I was married a second time during that time. Well, no, we weren't married yet. Actually we were engaged and uh, we're actually we weren't engaged yet. We were just dating, but we got engaged in uh, 2010 and uh, no 2010. We got engaged in 2010 and then we got married in 2011. So, um, yeah, during the time period, I was going through all of that, that whole tornado of, you know, uh, spiritual attacks, you know, trying to get closer to God, going to church, um, getting back into church. And then finally, I debut in 2010 in February to, you know, worldwide television and my entire life changed. Like it just I went from zero to hero. Like I was famous in one day and it was like, whoa, people were recognizing me everywhere. Like I remember my oldest son. Um, Ty is his name. He's um he's one of the producers on my album. He produced half my album, <laughs> but uh, he's also a running back at Ball State University. I'm very very proud of my, my kids. Very proud of my boy. He was um in elementary school at the time, and I remember flying back up to Ohio and going on a boat trip. It was a field trip for his school. I think he was like in sixth grade or something. And so I had gotten there and got on the boat with him and talked to his mother and we set everything up. I got there, got on the boat with him. I was expecting just to be able to sit with my son, do the boat ride with his classmates. Not what happened. They, we were swarmed by kids, like probably two or three dozen kids <laughs> and parents, like following us everywhere we went. And I was like, oh, like I kept telling him, baby, I'm so sorry. He was like, no, he was, he loved it. He was enjoying it. But I just kept him by me the whole time and, and just focused all my attention on him, just taking pictures with everybody. I'm like, all right, if you take a picture with me, my son's going to be in the picture. Like I'm not leaving him to take pictures. So he would be in every picture with every kid that we took you know but it was just it was crazy like that you know and then you know fast forward you know the year just went crazy i started having issues behind the scenes with you know with john cena and other wrestlers and then i got hurt then you know then uh then our the nexus angle ended the storyline ended and i ended up back in developmental i had like four or five bad injuries and i started having marital problems you know and i, I was staying i was staying in church you know and i was still learning and I just, you know, worked as hard as I could, training four times a day, through injuries, couple money to surgery for, never took a day off, traveling, you know, coast to coast around the country and, you know, outside the country and made it back to television and some things happened and I lost my job. <laughs> I got released from my contract, you know, and I mean, I was doing things like filming my own vignettes and, and, and uh, promo videos and I would take them. I remember one time I walked into Vince McMahon's office, his personal office, and that's a no, no, no one ever does that. I handed him the video, showed it to him, and he was just surprised. He's like, oh, okay. Then word got around. I did that, and, you know, everything was going really well. I thought, all right, now I'm, I'm going to be back, and then I got released the next one. <laughs> well, yeah, great. Right, all right. And then what? everything went downhill from there. <laughs> Life turned into a tornado after that. So then, uh, okay, and then you, what year were you officially done with uh, professional wrestling? 2021 was my last match. So after WWE, I left WWE in 2011, and I continued wrestling. I continued trying to, you know, revitalize my career. Uh, you know, from between 2011 and 2021, I went to England a couple of times, Canada, Puerto Rico a bunch of times. Um, I went to Japan, 
I went to India six times and wrestled the six tours in India. And, you know, and even during, you know, later on around 2017 until 2020, I was living in a garage. <laughs> I was like really struggling. And I was living in a friend of mine. I was living in their garage and traveling, you know, across the country, across the world, wrestling, living out of a garage, you know, just doing everything I could. And during that time period, 2018, that was when I, really started connecting with the Lord. And I started reading the Bible through and through and I started fasting, which helped me because, you know, right before that 2016 was all, was when all of the racial tension started to grow and the you know, BLM stuff. And that was like, uh, Trayvon Martin and, you know, a couple other people, you know, and some, some dealings or whatever. And I just, you know, I, that made me angry, but like, I, I wasn't sure how to feel about it. Cause I always had an objective mind, you know, and I, and I, I had good spiritual leaders around me that helped me to tie my feelings or run my feelings through the word and filter them through, through that before I just jump out, react and start storming the streets with BLM t-shirts, you know, and just react off of anger because, you know, you know, Hey there, it says black in the name. So that means it's for me when, you know, upon doing research, I realized what BLM actually is and I want nothing to do with that, but you know, that's a couple years down the line in this progression. So was was there you know being a being a black man and seeing the injustice and the murders uh, that were going on and then the sociological pressure and the political pressure mm. and the social media, yeah. uh, mm. what was going on within you as a mm. as a difference maker, an influencer, a strong man? Right. Uh, like, right. w- w- were you internalizing things or like what was happening on a on a on a conscious level or subconscious? That's a great way to put it because you know some things I did internalize. I had. So I went to a high school where I was one of like four, one of five black kids in the entire school. And it was a country school. Um, one was like a county school out in the country. I had to pass like three miles of cornfields before I got to school. You know, all I saw was flannels, pickup trucks. <laughs> and, you know, I got kind of called every racial slur under the book. And I was a bigger kid and I was an athlete. So as I got to you know, high school, I became one of the big dogs in high school. But I mean, from you know, sports, you know, referees, coaches from other teams, even my coaches, um, I'd go to high schools and I get stuff thrown at me, be called all kind of racial slurs, whatever. And, you know, I was able to just kind of weather that, but it just, it made me angry. And there was a time where I thought that I hated white people. I really believed that. I really believed that. And I look back on that and laugh at myself now because, you know, fast forward back to 2016, when those things started happening, I had already gone through that process, but that was still the first stage of me kind of maturing, you know, psychologically, mentally, and emotionally. So when the Trayvon Martin thing happened and everything, you know, I was able to look at that objectively because I was working in juvenile justice with, with youth, you know, inner city youth, at-risk youth. I know the overall general personality of, you know, people that come from that, that group of society. And it doesn't mean that they're bad. It's just a very tough atmosphere. So it, reads tough personalities and young kids that don't trust anything because of what they grew up in. It's not an excuse, but you know, so I, I can understand from both perspectives and even from the law enforcement perspective, I had a lot of issues with police. I never, never had a record. Don't have a record. Don't never committed felony, nothing. But I had a lot of issues with police growing up and it made me have a very negative perception of police. I hated police for a long time, but it was because of the police in Ken, Ohio that I was, you know, I had to deal with all the time. And I never was never did crimes. Never hung out with people that did crimes. They just they targeted me, you know, not just me, but and 
you know, once I started working in juvenile justice and working with police and working with law, law enforcement, you know, I got to talk to them and understand their side and what the perspective is for them. You know, they explain a lot. Like, you know, yeah, there's people who take the badge as their, you know, their Superman symbol. But, you know, a lot of people, they don't. Like, they just, they just, it's a dangerous job, you know, and it's just to make it home. It, you know, it, it's, it's something that should be respected, but people take it for granted. And with the BLM stuff and all of that, it was easy to seduce minorities, you know, black people and, you know, brown people, whoever, into thinking that they have to act like a mass of victims that should burn down everything to get retribution when people aren't able to objectively look at the message and see they're being manipulated and the skin color is being used for an organization like BLM to make millions of dollars but give nothing to any of the communities that they claim they support. But in actuality, there are certain communities they do support and it's a mask <laughs> to cover up the truth. But all it takes a little bit of research, you know. And for me, I, you know, I, I almost got suckered in, almost, you know, with the whole Black Lives Matter thing. And I thought about it. I'm like, all right, my bone of contention was when people opposed it. And I thought, why would you protest that? That means something, you know. But then I thought about it. And I still never jumped on board with it. But it still was like, but it means something. You know, it, it should be respected. And, you know, fast forward to 2020. And then when the riots happened, I think with, with, with the whole pandemic, because that's what I refer to it as, that to me immediately, I snuffed that one out. I sniffed it out immediately. Like I was like, nah, this is, something's not sitting right with this. It just, it seems like propaganda. It, nothing's logical about this. And the way that they kept changing their position, you know, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, because a mask, it doesn't make sense. All of a sudden, if you don't wear a mask, then you're a bad person. And then the, the propaganda and the gaslighting came with, with masks. And then fast forward to lockdowns, fast forward to, you know, the shot and all of that. Then the George Floyd thing happened and then all of that stuff. And I'm like, whoa, this is awfully convenient that now they want everyone locked down, but they're not saying anything about thousands of people protesting and rioting who aren't wearing masks, who aren't, you know, they don't care about that. All of a sudden COVID's not spreading to them. And it just started making me think. And um, during the lockdown, I, I was homeless. <laughs> I had a truck, I was sleeping in a truck. Uh, which, which is a really tough time period, but it was what I needed. God was working on me. Um, and my good friend, JC Perez, uh, Strong Life Raw, check him out. He's one of the best videographers and businessmen you'll ever, you'll ever come in contact with. But we sat down and he helped me out, helped me a lot during that time period. And he just kind of spoke truth to me. He's like, yo, let me tell you the truth about, you know, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Democrat, Republican, politics. And I studied other conspiracy theories, but I never got into politics. And he just opened my mind up. And I'm eternally grateful because now I see the world for what it is and not through the lens that I'm brainwashed. And I'm supposed to see it as a black person. You know, I don't see the world just through the lens of a black person. I see the world through the lens of a human, through a Christ, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. And part of what helped me with that is I was able to, when I started reading the Bible through and through, I was able to understand one thing a good friend told me. She referred to her body as her skin suit. She said, this is my earth suit. So what do you mean? She said, you know, when we die, our spirit will live on and go wherever, you know, God intends for it to go. Right. But our flesh stays in the ground and returns to the dirt. Mm -hmm. So the truth is this existence that we have within the bodies that we hold, touch, see, do whatever we do with is the smallest part. It's the infancy of our actual eternal existence. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. So why would you base all of your worth and wealth and identity on the infancy of your eternity? So it's like, you know, a person who's a grown adult 
identifying as a baby who's two years old. They just can't let go of the fact that they were a toddler and they want to live their entire life as a toddler. And there probably is someone doing that, but you know, <laughs> but with understanding that, have, it helped me to have your entire, yeah, have your entire identity, which uh, mm-hmm. these Marxists, these leftists, the, the media, mm-hmm. social media, your entire identity is based on the quantity of melanin you have. I mean, right. Seriously? We are so much yeah. more complex and made for something so much greater and eternal right. than yeah. this earthen vessel. But that's that's ge- that that's social engineering, and that, you know that that's a psychological warfare. When you 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 can take people, it's easy that you can take ten people and you can ask them a series of questions, and you can pick out the objective thinkers mm. and the sheep easily. And then it's easier to target the sheep if you convince the sheep that the objective th- thinker is the bad guy. You find something that all of the sheep have in common, take a, an, an emotion grenade, mm-hmm. drop it in their community, boom, it ignites. They all run to it. And the next thing you know, you got a whole bunch of people following whatever false flag you're leading them with based off of their emotions. And, you know, if you go to people, you know, for example, you know, you know the LGBT community, uh, you know, the trans, all of that stuff. Cool. You know, live your life. Cool. But if you base your movement off of anger and off of uh, antagonizing people that don't agree with you instead of just saying, all right, this is what we want to do. And everyone's saying, okay, cool, do it. You know, I don't have to affirm or agree, but I'm not going to attack you for it. And yeah, maybe there are some people that do, but you know, for it to be sensationalized into a victimhood thing. And I've always thought that, you know, that just in truth, you know, again, I'm not doing any disclaimers or anything like that. I'm speaking the truth. I've always thought that that movement piggybacked off of the struggle of black people in America and use that as their template to, to play victim. Yeah. So, you know, I, in wrestling, I've met a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, atheists, you know, who people who are Satanists and the witchcraft, things like that, you know, and, you know, the trans community and, you know, the LGBT community. And, you know, my, you know, I don't really have a, I don't agree with it. I don't affirm the lifestyle, but I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not against anyone who lives that lifestyle. I think people, and, and I think what's being manipulated onto the masses is if you aren't 100% on board with something, then you, you know, they use keywords like hate and love and they misuse those words. Um, I don't, you know, you don't have to affirm or 100% agree with someone to still love them and be friends with, them, you know, and still care for them, you know. And one of my, you know, the only issue I've had is that, you know, it seems as if, and a lot of people say it's like the, 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 the mo- their movement has been, it's like they hijacked the struggle of black people that they actually had in America and made that, pretended like that's their struggle, you know, when it's not true. That's, you know, my only, it was old sayings like gay is a new black, you know, that, that, that used to offend me. Um, it doesn't offend me anymore because, you know, I have, the closer I've gotten to God, the more I've read the word and understood that, you know, like I was saying, you know, my, this is my skin suit, my body is my earth suit. And this is a temporary, very temporary part of my existence because when we we leave this earth, you know, and we are waiting to go, you know, to eternity, to heaven, and it will be our spirit, the essence of who we are, you know, and we're and no one's going to be black, no one's going to be white, we're going to be male, we're going to be female, we're going to be married, you know, when we get our heavenly bodies, we're going to be completely different from this, and it is the, you know, sense the infancy of our existence. So to me, when you when you make the color of your skin an idol and you worship it and you want everyone else to worship it, or you make your personal choice of lifestyle 
an idol and you want everyone else to worship it by affirming it, you know, things like pronouns, things like, you know, you know, Pride Month or Black History Month, things like that, you know, cool. It just shouldn't be an idol. Um, when I was, when my eyes were open to that and, you know, conversations with my friend JC, it helped me to understand the truth about the government. And when I see certain things happening, I can pick a false flag out from a mile away. And I just don't jump into it. And I think it was easy. It would have been very easy to get locked into and trapped into that mindset, you know, being that I have gone through, I've experienced racism before, you know, it, and, but I know that the racism I experienced was from the people I experienced it from, not all white people or all this or all that. And the ideology being taught now to this new generation to, you know, this quote unquote reverse racism, which is all racism, but now it's okay to, attack white people or particular white men, straight white men, like it's, you know, patriarchy with extreme feminism, which, you know, it all kind of rolls into the same sandwich, if you will. And it's going against the intention of, of God's creation that, you know, man and woman, woman was made for man, man and woman need each other, husband and wife need each other. So, you know, continue the nuclear family that if you look at the original Black Lives Matter uh, mission statement, they wanted to dismantle the nuclear family. Yes. You know, so they built their millions in their organization off of, you know, black men being killed in situations with police, but they don't care about men at all <laughs> in their mission statement. You know, and if, if, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to be able to see one plus one doesn't two, doesn't, it's two, it doesn't add up, you know. But that was one of the things that I was able to recognize when I started doing research, you know, with everything I just said. You know, on the Black Lives Matter movement, three three women who were behind it, what their lifestyle choices were, understanding, okay, they are, they formed an organization based off of their beliefs instead of a organization that could suit anyone who can identify with or relate to, you know, these situations, you know, that are happening in the streets or injustices or whatever, you know, people want to call them. But instead it was, that was the cover up to further push their agendas of their personal believes. And I saw that. And I just thought, no, I don't want anything to do with that. I, I don't want anything to do with that at all. Yeah. I, I think the foundation that you had uh, from your mother and your home, and then also having mm -hmm. a clear Christian worldview, all these mm -hmm. things, the, the, the feminist or the, or the, mm -hmm. the gender ideology or, or CRT, it really oh, wreaks, yeah. wreaks havoc with, uh, with the person in terms of their identity. Everything is about how I identify my gender, my sexuality, yep. my, my yep. color of my skin versus yeah. we are all made in the image of God. Our identity mm -hmm. is, is hidden in God. He is doing something in us. He loves us. We have a, a mm -hmm. duty to our creator. And mm -hmm. uh, we, we put such an emphasis on the external identity, which absolutely wrecks people, you know, and, the, yeah. and, and I think it's done intentionally and uh, we see yes. it played out. And so it's really amazing, you know, especially you being a, a victim of oppression and or prejudice or discrimination. I mean, just uh, yeah. racism isn't even in the Bible for one. I mean, the word isn't there. Yeah. It's, it's partiality, no. you know? And so, mm -hmm. so you, you, you were targeted by the police and, you know, some of the coaches and things like that. Uh, yeah. You were able to see through it. You didn't like embrace it and, uh, coddle it and own it and mm -hmm. like, oh mm -hmm. look at me i got a v victim as a black man mm -hmm. tattooed on my forehead and i'm gonna go through life yeah. with resentment toward everybody you were able to uh although the temptation was there and the allure was there you mm -hmm. you, you saw it for what it was and yeah i think i think that's a powerful message uh 
for for all of us, you know, to to yeah. not embrace embrace the victim mentality, whether it's right. gender or you know, even now yeah. it seems like there's more persecution against Christians. You know, there's it's more hostile yeah. op openly for a Christian to yeah. say, "Look, I'm a, I'm an overcomer. I'm not a victim." Uh, even though yeah. how things yeah. happen, you know, and so yeah. I, I love your message, and and so like a lot of this is tied into political things, and mm. you know, mm -hmm. it's uh, I like you to talk a little bit about how you how your friend mentored you and brought clarity to you in terms yeah. of uh, you know the political atmosphere that's you know gripped our nation oh, yeah absolutely you know and and to expand on what you just said to lead into you know the answering your question it would seem like this is a spiritual attack it's intentional because to get god's creation to focus on making an idol of their earthly mortal experience and causing them to ignore or forget about their eternal life their essence in eternity as a spirit you know, it gets them to forget that they are God's creation wow. and it gets them to look at themselves as their own creation. As their, I've seen videos of, you know, trans, you know, dudes, you know, wearing makeup saying, literally calling himself saying, we are God, we are gods, we can decide what we are. We, you know, we're trans, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm a woman, so I'm a woman. I'm like, it's literally a, I replace God type of ideology. Maybe not all people who are trans people say those exact words, but I've seen a lot that do, you know, and I don't want to generalize the whole, the whole you know group of people but it, you know it's, it just seems to me like yeah it's a thing that where you replace the creator as with yourself now you are god because you can decide what gender you are and you know it, leading that into the, the, the politics of it when you have one party attacking the the emotional central nervous system of certain groups and using it to manipulate them you know basically you know, saying, you know, hey, I'm going to trick you into thinking that I'm going to trick you into committing suicide, even though I'm trying to kill you. But you're going to take the gun from me and say, no, I have a right to do it. I want to do it myself because it's my right, my body, my choice. Bang, I'm going to kill myself. Now I'm dead. It's, you know, what I'm saying it's, it's that ultimate chess game version of manipulation. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, the Republican Party is, is, is good and Democratic Party is evil. But I have learned the truth. You know, I've learned about the fact that it was the Republican Party that abolished slavery. It was the Democratic Party that wanted to fight for slavery. It was, you know, and, and people don't look at the truth. You know, that's a general way of putting that part of history, but people don't look that up and look at the truth. As a black person, as a black kid, I was always growing up and thought, if I'm black, I'm supposed to vote Democratic because I saw all my famous rapper, favorite rappers telling me to be a Democrat, vote for the Democrat because Republicans are all racist, white, rich, white people. That was what I was taught, you know? And as I got older, I realized... You know, and I never participated in it, and I never participated in that. As I got older, I realized, and even now I realize, you know, with my friend JC kind of mentoring me in that, I realized that there's, you know, there's, there's, it's all been lies. And it's all been lies based on manipulating me, based on my community, my upbringing, and using it against me to drag me by the nose, you know, to whatever direction they want me to go, because I gave them my emotions and made them my idol. And, you know, when you get someone like Joe Biden, you know, who will look in a camera and say, if you don't know who you're voting for, me or Trump, you ain't black. What? And people actually still looking at that and excusing that. And, you know, and I have, I have good friends and I've lost lost friends over, you know, politics over this, you know, this last presidential race in 2020, because they did a great job of villainizing Trump and making Trump the devil to people. You know, when truth is, he's actually not, you know, he's not any different than he's ever been. 
you know, but they did a great job of taking sound bites and portraying it to people who they know won't do research and find entire videos of some of the speeches, but they'll just take that sound bite and run with it. They'll take a, a clip from a, you know, the title of a story and run with it. And it's created this culture of accusation means, means death sentence, even though there's no, no truth, no due process, no investigation, just an accusation, you know, where you got people like Johnny Depp losing his entire career over false accusations of Amber Turd. I mean, Amber Heard. And then it comes out that she was lying about everything. You know, uh, Jonathan Major's another one. You know, he's the guy that played Kane the Conqueror. You know, he, he's his whole career destroyed over accusations. Then video evidence comes out that he wasn't lying. She was lying. You know, and that's where, the, you know, the radical feminism part comes in. And it's all packaged into the same side of politics. And you can't even, like, say, I don't agree with children being sexualized. And then the response is, oh, you're one of those crazy right wing nut jobs. Wait, so you agree with children being sexualized? Let's not even talk about the fact that it has nothing to do with politics. I just don't want children to be sexualized. You know, so if you preach the, you know, if, if they manipulate well enough, which they have, you can literally get people to forget their morality, you know, and in forgetting their morality, it gets them further and further away from their creator, further and further away from God to the point where, you know, you got teenage girls on TikTok burning sage and doing stuff, talking about crystals and all of this witchcraft stuff they don't realize actually does invite evil spirits into their home and into their living experience. You know, they don't realize they're actually doing this. And, you know, it, it's, it's something that always has to be considered in this, you know, eternal fight against good and evil. And during this time period, I made a choice not to allow anyone on the television to tell me that I have to walk, talk, speak a certain way, use certain word, pronouns, whatever, because of the color of my skin. I'm always going or take an injection or whatever the case may be, or do anything medical or wear a mask, whatever, because they say so. I'm going to do research, figure out what's the best thing for me, if it works, and then cross-reference that. First, cross-reference it with the word of God, make sure it's biblical. Mm. If it's not biblical, I'm not doing it. I want no part. You know? Yeah, I like what you're saying about this uh us becoming God thing. And it seems like there's mm. that, that same Luciferian spirit mm. in the garden of Eden. Uh, Oh, mm. did God really say don't eat from this because God, mm. because God knows that your eyes will be open and you will be like him knowing good from yeah. evil. And so it's, yeah. it's the same thing that's re repeated in the garden. We see all through our society right now of, right. of, of a forgetfulness and a ignorance or a, lack of acknowledgement that we there, that there is a creator and there is a, a divine order and a moral responsibility that each one of us have to the one that yeah. created us and yeah uh, we, we eliminate that we eliminate him and uh then we ourselves become uh, our own gods and then you see the absolute yeah. chaos as a result that's being played out all around us yeah i mean if we become god then the, you know and we build a kingdom the kingdom will always fail because we're fallible we're we're imperfect. We, you know, we're not omni, omnipotent, omnipresent. We don't have eternal knowledge. Like God is God for a reason. We are not. And in our infinite, you know, imperfection, he still loves us. You know, even people that curse him and, you know, swear against him, swear to him, swear on him, swear against him, he still loves them. And we can't fathom the possibility of how he can do that. We can try. I do my best to imitate that by you know, I, I refuse to debate people. If they don't agree with me or don't agree with what I believe in, I refuse to debate them. I'll tell them, you tell me why you believe in what you believe in. Help me understand why you chose that path. 
because I believe in I believe in in Jesus Christ so much, I'm so confident in that. I don't have to debunk what you believe. I believe in. I'm so confident in what I believe in. Mm. I don't have to discredit what you. I don't have to change your mind. But I'm going to show you who He is in me by listening to you tell me what you believe in. And I can tell you, there's been so many conversations with atheists, with Satanists, you know. And by the end of the conversation, we're hugging each other like best friends, you know. And I didn't say a word. And, you know, but I just listen to them and let them tell me their story. And as they're talking, then they hear their own discrepancies in their belief and they hear their own things that don't make sense and hypocrisies. And I don't judge them for it. I said, oh, yeah, tell me more. I want to understand what brought you down that path. You know, and I tell them, you know, I believe this, this is why I believe this. Why do you believe that? And by the end of it, you know, I had a conversation with a friend I met in India and he was a he was a he was a atheist, like through and through, you know, atheists love the moment you tell them you're a Christian, they, they're, you know, they're. The thing they love to do is just attack your Christianity and try to, you know, they can't just say, oh, cool, you're Christian, cool, I'm an atheist, right, no problem, what's your name? They can't do that, you know, some. And, you know, the moment he found out I was a Christian, he immediately went on attack, trying to make fun of it, make fool of it, debunk it. And I told him, I said, okay, I understand, just tell me why you're an atheist, what brought you to that? And we sat in the car for two hours and talked, by the end of it, we were hugging each other, we were best friends, and he respected because I just told him what I believe in, he, you know, he gave me different things to look up, and he's you know, introduced me to what's called Zoroasterism. And he, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, some religion that he claims predated Christ. And I said, okay, I, I'll look it up. And instead of me saying, no, you're wrong. I hate you. I said, okay, no problem. I'll look it up. I know the truth. Nothing predate, predates Christ. He was there in creation. You know, nothing predates Christ. But, you know, I looked it up, you know, and, and found out more about it or whatever. And, and that's what I answered my saying. That's what we believe. You know, nothing predates Christ. Christ was there in creation. He you know, the Father and the Holy Spirit are all the same in hypostatic union. They are, the Trinity is all one and the same, you know, and, but that is what I believe, you know. So I told him, no, give me more information. Give me things to look up. One of my best friends I grew up with, um, we've known each other our whole lives. He converted to Islam in, in 2013. One of my best friends, his name is Eric. And, you know, he called me and told me he was converting to Islam. And, and a lot of friends that we had turned their back on him because of that. And this is only a couple of years, you know, this, uh, not a couple of years, but this is still after the tensions of 9-11 and things like that, you know, and he was in the military. And I told him, I said, I love you the same. I, you know, the way I love you is never, never going to change. You know, you, you decided you're going to be a Muslim, be the best Muslim you can be. But I told him, you know, when you look up one day in the sky and you see Jesus, then you better be able to hit your knees and say, you know what? I was wrong. <laughs> but if I look up in the sky one day and I see Allah, then, I, then I'm going to have to be able to do the same. He said, okay, fair enough. Of course, we both know that that's not going to happen because, you know, the latter of the two is not going to happen. But, you know, even from there, you know, like there's some times we've been praying. Like I remind him, hey, did you pray? You know, or we'll pray, you know. And, you know, I want him to, I told him, give me a Quran. You know, he, he sent me a Quran, you know, and I read through most of it. I want to understand it because I want to understand what he's doing because my stance is, as, as Christ is my example, I love you no matter what. You being a Muslim doesn't make me love you anymore. I don't support Islam, but I support you. You know, I have friends in the wrestling business, who, you know, who are gay, who are, in the, you know, who are in, in the lifestyle, you know, and I don't, that, I don't, I don't support that. I don't affirm that. I'm not, I don't hate, hate it or anything like that, but I love you. You are my friend, regardless of that. So I support right. you, you know, and if that's what you do, cool. I'm not against it. I'm not going to, every time I see you say, no, I don't support homosexual. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk about it. And, you know, I've been, in conversations with friends and we, we're openly talking, you know, you know, whatever. And they'll talk from their perspective as, you know, as a homosexual and cool. It's part of this conversation. No problem. Cool. And I'm not grossed out by it. I'm not like, oh, I'm too much of a Christian. I came on. No, I'm, I'm still me no matter what. 
and I'm showing them love and showing them, you know, be who you are, you know, because there's going to come a time in your walk where you're going to face the truth that I had to face about my life. And the truth that you're going to face is going to be different from mine because I passed it. And, you know, I don't make what your lifestyle an idol. I just love you, you know, so that way I'm not against what you do. I don't agree with it, but I still love you regardless. And to me, you know, that is the best I can do to represent Christ in my life, to show love to people, you know, and what they do doesn't rub off on me. But what I do rubs off more on them because they see the difference because they expect me to act a certain way when I don't. And I, you know, give them a clue. I said, well, this is, that's body of Christ. That's how we act. You know, we don't, that that's truly how it is, how we act. Well, we don't agree with certain things, but we're not going to, you know, cut your head off just because we don't agree with it. We shouldn't, you know, and there are bad representations in that regard, but you know, I try my best not to do that, you know? You know, I, I like sociologically speaking, it's all through the world mm-hmm. when there's a, a minority community and there has mm-hmm. been a history of oppression. Uh, people like uh, Jewish people or, mm-hmm. you know, foreigners that live in a foreign country, they tend to mm-hmm. form blocks for survival, like voting blocks. And so it's yeah. logical to yeah. me why uh, in America, the African-American community has primarily voted Democrat the last, you know, how yeah. many generations. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah. it's logical. It makes sense. However, we're both clear that there's certain levels of manipulation that are going on to stoke things. Yeah. And yep. my question is, do you notice in the African-American community a certain level yeah. where people are starting to say, you know what, you know, I'm being, we're being had here. We're being used. And this is, uh, you know, people the, waking up. You, you sense that's happening or is it uh, are people pretty much cheap in the African-American community? I've- you get, you get in any, in any group of people, you get, you know, you get your percentage of sheep, right? Um, from what I've noticed in particularly the African or black American community, a lot of people are starting to wake up. You'll find, you'll find a lot more people who support Trump or who voted for Trump. You'll find a lot more black people, you know, than you, than the media will, will, uh, will let you believe. And people are able to see through that. Like before Donald Trump, you know, got into politics, he was loved by everyone. In particular, the hip hop hip hop community, you know, and was loved by every people were referencing him and their so- songs had him in their music videos. You know, when my friend JC woke me up to that, I started doing research and he started giving me things, you know, giving me breadcrumbs of research and the things that Donald Trump was doing, like giving all of the money he did to the you know historically black colleges, you know, supporting those and different other things, you know, that other presidents who claimed to be for this particular community did not do. And I look at that and I'm like, so, you know, and other friends I have who hate Donald Trump, I'm like, well, if you can't see it objectively, can you at least recognize that he did do this? Why would he do this if he is actually a racist? Why would he do that? And, you know, granted, it's still politics, but, you know, the people that they like the Joe Bidens of the world, who you know, he's not a racist, he's for black, but, you know, he spoke at you know the whoever that person was the grandmaster whatever the kkk he was like best friends with spoke at his, at his funeral again you can be friends with whoever you choose just because he's friends with a guy doesn't mean he's part of the kkk but is that a good look logically you know um and if today's population is judging people based on associations and then idolizing their own personal associations that should be incriminating you know but I, i've noticed that more black people that I've seen, they're starting to understand more that they, we're being had. We've been had. And then there are, there's a lot that don't, you know, that, that hold on to that, um, 
you know, the idea of this is what it means to be black. I have to fight against, you know, when, yeah, there are things that, you know, every group has to fight against, you know, but if you decide to buy into the CRT rhetoric and all of those things where you have to now, you know, black, white people bad, white man bad, straight white man bad, white people bad, white privilege, white privilege. You know, I've been to India and, I, and I've seen, I saw a mother on the side of the road giving her two toddlers a bath in a puddle, in a puddle on the side of the road. And I saw that and I thought to myself, she couldn't care less. I walked over and gave her food. She didn't care what color I was. The only thing she recognized is that I was American. She called me American. She didn't say you're a black man, you're a Christian, you're a gay man, you're a straight man, you're a cisgender man, you're a trans man. She said, oh, you're American in her accent. And, and I said, yes. And I gave her the food. She said, thank you, thank you, thank you. It, it just, that spoke volumes to me because, you know, when I go to other countries, they see an American. They refer to me as American. That's all they see. And all of these, you know, oppression ideologies here, that's an American thing. They're first world problems because, bomb drops on America, and now we become a third world country, gender roles now go, come back into play for survival. Feminism goes out the window. <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it just, you know, but I always encourage people, you know, and, and black, especially young black kids that I work with in particular, you know, find a way to get outside of the community you live in. Man. Go to another city, then go to another state, then go cross country, then go out of the country because what they don't even realize is that different cities have different cultures. That's right. Different states have different cultures. Like I love the fact that I can recognize where someone's from based on their accent. And I've been to that city and I've got a chance to get a feel of the personality of that city and what it's like. You know, I love that. Like how different the East Coast, California is from New York and New York is from Texas and Ohio is from Florida and Georgia is from Wisconsin. I love that. I love that so much. The way people dress is just the food. It's, it's, you know, I, I love seeing the differences in cultures and that helped me to minimize the idol idolization of the color of my skin and maximize my understanding of how un unimportant that is in the grand scale of things. That not allowing myself to let politics brainwash me into thinking that I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed, I have to see the world because I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed, and everything I do has to be oppression. And, and even you know, people not understanding the difference between capitalism and socialism. Young kids walking around calling themselves communists and Marxists. And I'm like, did you do any research on Karl Marx? Did you do any research on, on Hitler and Stalin and, and, you know, and these other, you know, Hitler, but, you know, Stalin and Mussolini, these other Marxist communists, you know, and, and like, did you do any homework on that? Like you live in a country that's that, you know, that's a, uh, um, you know, people said our democracy, it's a constitutional republic, you know, and capitalism though it can be abused and you know of course any system can be abused is the reason why the country has thrived because if it was you know built on socialism you have no autonomy you'd have no privacy kind of like china right nothing against china but you know or other countries who live on that you know i know you know some friends of mine who are from cuba and they were like no nah, i don't want nothing to do with that because we experienced that and we saw that so what they're trying to do with this country we saw that before and I hear that and I'm like, wow, like that's so valuable to me. Yeah. People who actually saw it, you know, where they came from and they see the direction they're trying to go in this country. And every perspective is valuable to me. But when I see that, it helps me understand the truth. And I won't allow myself to be manipulated using the color of my skin and my struggle 
and then sacrificing everything I've been to to prop up another group who wants to pretend they had struggled the way that I know I have. Wow. And then I'm forced to affirm, you know what I'm saying? Yes. You know. Well, well brother, we're, uh, I'm going to give you the last word. I want you to give a good sure. exhortation uh, to, yeah. to the audience, uh, something that they can really build their life on and think about and, and maybe change Absolutely. their opinions and really help some people here. You know, this is our whole goal of the show. Absolutely. What helped me is understanding that God is real. Jesus Christ is real. His Holy Spirit is real. And mm -hmm. with understanding that, I understand, you know, the, the grand calculus of the multiverse. <laughs> A little Dr. Strange there. But no, in all seriousness, it helps me understand how big he is and how small I am. And how, because I'm so small, I can't operate in this reality, in this life, in this world without and if I can't operate without God, I, I can't operate without Jesus Christ. And that means that everything that I see in the mirror, as important as it is to me in the grand scale of things, it's temporary. What's important is my connection to him, the image that I was made of, that was made in his image. That was my spirit. And understanding that when I get closer to him, it's more important to make my character the best, my spirit the best it can be. And take care of the gift that he gave me, which is this mortal life, this earth suit that he gave me. And it's like buying a car and having your dream car and then you idolize your dream car and then your car gets crashed and now you're depressed for months and you can't move on with life because you lost the car. And it's easy for anyone hearing that to say, well, it's just a car. Well, this is just the car. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite the same, but you know, you have to take care of it, but you don't idolize it. It's your vessel and to interact with creation. And it is your vessel to interact and appreciate creation. And, and I want any, everyone listening to this, what this man just said, he got in front of God and realized how small he is. And mm. you're getting a message from the man out of 8 billion people in this planet mm. that has the world record for his weight category that is stronger than any other man on this planet uh, in his category saying in front of God, I am, he is great. He is big and I am small. And mm. if you're listening to this message, begin to pivot in your mind that there is a creator that, that loves you, that he's made you for a purpose. He's given you a vessel and take it from my friend who has gone through the ups and downs of life. The strongest man on the planet <clears throat> It says, I'm very small. And he, with genuine humility, look at the joy in his life. Look at the clarity of his life. Look at the love that he has for people, everybody, because of the transform, transformative power that he has experienced. Yeah. And so embrace that if you're listening to this today. Amen. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. I couldn't have put it better. And I just, I would just hope people understand that, you know, hey, you know, love isn't love. God is love. And when you make love, love, then you become the God of your own version of love. And beautiful. you'll always fail, you know, and that's, you know, we're imperfect. So when you put God back in his place, take him out of the box, even if you choose not to believe in him, the truth is one day you're going to come to, to, to face that reality. And, you know, why not prepare yourself for that in the meantime, you know? Well, brother, I wish I was in front of you. I give you a big hug. And, ah. and my friend, I, I I thank you so much for taking the time. And may God continue to bless you and prosper you, give you clarity, give you 
uh, a great sense of purpose and and may he anoint everything you're touching and that you that, that you would use all that he's given you to influence many other people for him. And so thank you for coming on the show today, my brother. Thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate it.